so today we have Tim Moreland. Tim is going to talk to us about any number of things cannabis, but I think we're going to, there's going to be a focus on both banking and legislation. And I myself uh, have some questions on both topics. So without further ado, Tim, if you want to introduce yourself, we can get this kicked off. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, pleasure to be here, guys. Tim Moreland. I'm the owner of Moreland Consulting, LLC. Um, I provide a whole host of services from compliance, licensing, governmental affairs work, and also connections to uh, financial institutions that bank the cannabis industry, that loan into the cannabis industry. Uh, I've had my own company for uh, probably about three years now. Uh, prior to that, I had worked for Kiva Confections as their director of licensing and compliance. Uh, and then uh, before that, I was the director of licensing compliance over at Origin House, uh, which was a Canadian company that came in and bought the company I originally started in the industry with. Uh, prior to the industry, I worked for um, Chairwoman Fiona Moth, the State Board of Equalization. I was her legislative director. Um, uh, to be completely honest, that was when I was first introduced to the cannabis industry. Um, I was a staffer sitting in my office one day and it was April of 2015, I'll never forget it. Uh, my boss walks in and says, hey, Tim, you're going to be my cannabis staffer. So uh, that meant that I started going on tours uh, the with the industry, started working on policy issues and uh, got really involved uh, in cannabis policy. So uh, worked for the BOE for three years and uh, went into the industry. Uh, doing compliance and licensing work and governmental affairs work. What was that transition like? That's kind of a unique transition <laughs> like to go from policy to working with an operator. And how did that come to be? Um, so one of the companies, River Distribution, um, had was working on policy in the state of California. So we're talking about the medical laws uh, in 2015. And then also some of the discussions around Prop 64. So um, I had met uh, folks who worked for the company. Uh, we'd worked on a variety of policy issues. They had a lobbyist and they were very involved in, in trying to save their version of the market, which didn't last. They wanted the three-tier distribution model, et cetera. Um, so that's where I met them. Uh, they hired me as their compliance and licensing director and, and their governmental affairs director. Um, so just kind of put it in perspective, it, at that time, we're talking November of 2017. So we're not yet into licensure um, and track and trade. Well, way before track and trace. Um, but uh, it was a really weird time to come into the industry, uh, especially making a transition from being in more of a uh, somewhat structured environment like government, you know, and policy affairs. Uh, but I have taken risk in my life before, like professional risks or kind of high exposure areas. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this. And I took the jump and, you know, right off the bat, it was like issues with trying to get licensed before January one. Uh, for some reason, my company had a fascination with being the number one distribution license. I, I tried to, to make that happen. That did not happen by the way. Um, and then um, also finding other locations in the state to open up for licensing and building their program. So uh, there was a lot of stress uh, at the very beginning, but I really reveled in it and um, 
you know, just became super involved in the policy discussions, uh, super involved in a lot of the policy and, uh, you know, working on compliance and, and like, like we were saying, um, basically building a compliance program for a large company while we're flying the ship, you know, while we're flying the airplane. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was fun times, um, but, uh, don't regret it at all. Yeah. And I, I remember when I, I mean, it was not unlike your foray into it and to the degree that I was in a completely living in a completely different world and came into working for an operator as in-house counsel and compliance director. And it was like, I mean, figuring out the operational state, local regs, that sort of thing was easy enough. But the the harder thing I found was like really expanding everybody's definition of compliance within the organization outside of the cannabis rags. Did you face something similar when you got into your new role or? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. I was constantly, um, and you know, everybody respected each other. So we had a good work environment, but I was constantly beating back. Yeah. All sorts of stuff that folks were wanting to do to drive sales, you know, that weren't compliant. Um, and, you know, from anything from operational, you know, questions and people, you know, operations wanted to do a certain thing a certain way that didn't, you know, meet, uh, you know, a state or local um, regulation. I was kind of the, I was kind of the bad guy. Uh, they had a term, the sales team had a term for me. They called me the golden snitch. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, but, uh, you know, I relish, I'm still good friends with all these guys. They're, they're, they're great people, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, I had to block some of that and had to deal with some, you know, friction and calls from the owners. Like, can, can you, is this really the case? And I was like, yes, it is. Sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. That's kind of like the dark side of, of compliance that no one wants to talk about is you can't always be the answer can't always be yes and sometimes mm -hmm. and most oftentimes it's somewhere in between yes and no and it's just that's why I, I i personally think that the hard skills like knowing the regs and whatnot is is the easy part the hard part is dealing with people <laughs> and having like a certain affect in the way that you deliver a message so that the people on the receiving end aren't taking it personally or or, or not taking it the wrong way. You know? Yeah, that's always, yeah, you're managing personalities essentially. And, you know, um, you know, it's a bend, don't break kind of thing, you know, not to say bend regulations, but you, you try to develop your SOPs as close. I mean, to me, it's like a fine art of developing an SOP and maybe this sounds weird, but it's got to match, it's got to, you got to make it compliant and match and get to very close to what the business needs to operate. So, you know, um, so, you know, I, I think in my career, I was very fortunate to be able to kind of walk that line and, and, and be able to develop, you know, so compliance SOPs that work um, for both sides as much as possible. Obviously you can't do that every time. So. Yeah. And I, I think understanding the business goes a long way too, mm -hmm. because I think you can, can become i mean obviously there's certain limits within that are placed by the regulations and enabling statutes but knowing the business and knowing what's going to get you to yes with something that's proposed by an operator is i think key yeah you know and and i also that's you know it's very key to know that stuff too and i and i, I had an opportunity you know i worked a lot on the policy and so when i talked to lawmakers and regulators um you know i had a good sense of like 
what operations are like, what the business is like, and how these policies that you pass impact the businesses, you know, and obviously, you know, I work for large companies, so, you know, we could probably take those hits a little bit better, those extra regulations or whatever they were going to do, but still it would impact business, it would impact jobs. And then it also just rolls downhill because on the larger, or excuse me, on the smaller uh, operators, those things become just entirely pressing, you know, especially right now with all these tight margins. I mean, any little thing you add can just, I'm afraid it's going to tip the balance in a very negative way. And I think maybe you maybe can argue that it already has. I mean, we lost, I don't know, 1100 cultivation licenses. Um, you know, so, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting time how the market's shaking out and what this market's going to be. So, uh, yeah, um, we shall see, but, um, things are very interesting. So I like to keep that in mind when, you know, talking to, to policymakers about legislation or, or regulators as well. So do you have thoughts as to why we've lost the cultivation canopy? Uh, is, I mean, yeah, you know, it's been, there's, it's been a tough time. Um, you've had, obviously there was overproduction, um, a lot of overproduction um, and, you know, anything from onerous state regulations to state taxes, uh, to local regulations, to local taxes. Um, you know, I've seen, I've, I'm on the policy board of, uh, of the Nevada County Cannabis Alliance, which is mostly made up of small cultivators in Nevada County. Uh, also, you know, work with the Mendocino County Alliance and look at like they have horrible issues in some of those counties, like just even trying to get permitted. Look what happened in Mendo, uh, where there's like they've granted six provisional licenses and there's like 900 in the queue. And I hear the I don't know what's going on exactly, but the state's coming in and going to fix that issue. So, yeah, I think I think most of it has been due to, you know, just very tight margins uh there's a lot of product however i i have with notice with you know working with my clients that some of those prices are starting to tick back up and i'm hearing farmers selling out of material uh, out of product which i love to hear those stories you know so that's a good one so things are kind of ticking back up but you know everybody's asking well how long is this actually going to last you know maybe this is just kind of the market kind of correcting itself so we we shall see but you know there's a lot of bad policy out there that's i think the major lion's share in impacting the businesses do you have a certain approach just given your background that you take when you you approach um policymakers at the local and state level yeah you know um hmm. you know everybody's so different it's a personality thing so but generally speaking, you know, I like to understand their side of a given issue with the regulation or taxation or whatever, you know, kind of get their side, what, the, what they're seeing, what they believe, what their, you know, notions are and maybe how they interpret a regulation. So take that into consideration first. And then, you know, obviously um, want to talk to them, maybe why that regulation isn't working or that this is how it could be better and put bringing that business experience like we just talked about um, and bringing my knowledge of the current regs and just kind of trying to meld that together uh, so we can have a proper discussion and i'm all about uh so 
maybe I'm old school and, but I'm all about civility in these conversations and understanding both sides. Um, I think you catch more, you know, bees with honey. I really believe in that. And that, especially with working with elected officials and regulators. Um, so I think they always appreciate that and they always appreciate you trying to work with them. Um, you know, there's multiple issues where, you know, maybe my client, you know, it, it could be anything from, you know, they misinterpret a reg and then going back to the regulators and saying, you know, how do we fix this? This was our interpretation. We messed up. Uh, you know, this won't happen again. Uh, and then just being like trying to work out issues with them and getting to where we all need to go. It's so interesting to me because outside looking in, you may make the assumption that, especially at the local level, that they're well-funded and well-educated on these issues. But so many times that I've sat down with local decision makers, they're like extremely hungry for information and willing yes. to take whatever information you're willing to give them. Because they, a lot of them are operating on, on shoestring budgets and do not have the um, prior knowledge with cannabis. Yeah, let me give you the inside information. Um, I mean, like I talked to a lot of elected officials and they still, they still wonder, you know, where they can go for information and they're still wondering, asking about issues because like basic issues, you know, so they still don't completely understand, you know, the market and how it operates. You know, there's a couple cannabis uh, champions, I would call them that are in the state legislature that probably know the issues better than most in the legislatures, but even then, you know, they still they, they're still politicians and they have other interests that they have to, or other policy issues they have to deal with in their districts. You know, it's not all about cannabis. So they still even ask for information. So yes, it's like, we got this perfect opportunity, which I don't think the cannabis industry really understands to a, a whole degree, like to really like be there for education to, to these members and guarantee we'll get much better policy. It's almost just easier to assume that like if a local jurisdiction hasn't opened its doors that it's stigma driven and I'm sure that very is that is the case in certain circumstances but I don't know nine times oh, totally times. totally yeah I'll never forget one uh, uh, when I worked for River I opened a distribution facility in La Habra California great city love those people um, so we came in and talked about being there this we came in and talked about being the first cannabis, you know, licensee there. So they had to create an ordinance. They had to pass it, work through them with this process, create the tax uh, structure. And then they put us through this whole licensing process that took almost a year on top of all that. But we got in there, we started operating, but one of the commit, one of the committee hearings to approve our project, one of the city council members, was complaining about smelling cannabis uh, during at Thanksgiving one year, uh, right in the committee hearing. And I'm like, oh my God, like, <laughs> this is hilarious. So that was her stigma was like, someone messed her up, messed up her, uh, you know, her turkey day with, with cannabis smoke. But eventually she came around and voted in favor of our project, so. Yeah, most, I mean, it definitely exists, but most people I've spoken with at the local level just, are trying to figure it out you they know are. Most, you know some may be concerned that their constituency is not going to be happy with can cannabis but at the individual level at the individual local decision maker level 
most of them aren't against it, but they're just trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B to implement a program more often. Yeah, they are. They are. They definitely are. Most people are good spirited. They have a good heart about it. Most of them like, look at cannabis is not a big deal. I'm going to just going to be completely honest. Cannabis might not be the biggest deal to them, but they may want to see a little bit of extra revenue coming into their city. They, uh, and then they want to feel comfortable with, you know, the licensees who are coming in place. So if you can talk about when you're going before these cities and you can talk about real basic stuff, how much money will I bring in as a cannabis industry? What's the economic benefit? Uh, what's the upsides? What's the security going to be like? They want to talk about that. They want to like, know you, you know, got a decent handle on security, especially in light of like a lot of robberies and stuff like that. So it's not rocket science, you know, but it, you know, it's just like knowing what they want to hear and, and giving it to them. And honestly, it's completely honest. There's no kind of, yeah, you know, companies will come in and inflate their numbers and stuff. And I don't like that. That's never a good issue, but, um, but just be honest with them. And like, that's, that's the best thing you can do. I mean, most of these people want this in their community in some aspect of another, I mean, they, they really kind of mess it up with, you know, some of the, the structures of the green zones and where this can be licensed and how many licensed, but um, at least they're trying, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, in the same way a license is only valuable to an operator if they keep it, an operator is only valuable to a municipality if it, it stays in business. So like, I always think, you know, in terms of tax structures and other fees associated with getting licensed, there has to be a degree of practicality as yeah. a locality, you know. Yeah, and you can tell like a lot of these communities, uh, they want they want these cannabis businesses to be successful. So they, um, they will, you know, I've, I've worked in, in areas where they're like, you know, they want to help you find real estate, you know, they, um, you know, if, uh, if there's any issues, they tend to take care of them, um, you know, or they may work on policy issues with you better because they want to, they want to genuinely like make it work because, uh, they put a lot of time, I mean, just on a personal level, they put a lot of time and effort, like the people who've like really propped up these programs for these cities, uh, whether you agree with what they've done or not, they probably put a lot of time and effort in developing these programs and kind of kind of married like with the success of the actual cannabis businesses there. So you got that personal uh, element, but then also just kind of dollars and cents. You want to, you want to ensure these companies stay open. What does your your day to day look like? A lot of people, and I think this is like a really good base discussion for us to have. And a lot of people that enter into this group or listen to it after the fact, I think, are looking themselves to get into the industry as a consultant or, or the like. What does your day to day look like? Do you offer these types of services where you'll go down into a municipality and have these conversations? What's it, what's it look like for you on that end of things? Yeah. Oh man, this is a great question. Like what does my day-to-day -day look like? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would say probably about 30% of my time is working on compliance and licensing issues for my clients. Um, I would say about 20 uh, is um, 20 would probably be, 
just working on like audits and stuff like that. So I guess that would be more compliance. So let's say 50 compliance. And then, man, how do I split this? Because I am doing political work. You know, I work with council members in various cities. I have clients who are interested in opening up in various places, uh, clients who have current projects, um, you know, that are coming up before planning commissions. I deal with issues like with clients, uh, you know, um, like well, all the regulate, like any regulatory uh, questions that come up, uh, maybe any issues that they need help with in the department, uh, Department of Cannabis Control. So I do that. Um, also do a lot of work. Um, man, yeah, it's the one hard one to answer, but do a lot of work. Um, connecting people to financing uh, and to banking as well, because I that's kind of one of my, um, you know, kind of passions about the industry is kind of the financial side too. You know, I'm, I've, you know, made this career in, in, in regulatory and licensing and governmental affairs side, but I'm like right now, I'm very, I'm still interested in stuff. Don't get me wrong, but I'm very interested in the financial aspects uh, and, you know, just working in the banking sector at Pacific Valley bank. Um, so I'm really interested in the finances and how these companies are going to survive and very interested in seeing the ones kind of the scrappy, I don't know if everybody's seen this, but I'm seeing a lot of these kind of scrappy mid-sized companies that are, are just doing actually pretty well and sometimes turning a profit and very interested in that model. And maybe that's something that's sustainable in the cannabis industry, I don't know. I think most consultants that get into this space and even attorneys think right away, like I wanna work with an operator, like supply chain operator. What does it look like, though, as a consultant or an attorney to work with a bank related to cannabis? Because I think that's yeah, um, yeah. So, um, so you know, basically, I ran a program at Pacific Valley Bank. I know how. I know the business side of the cannabis banking industry. I know you know a lot of the regulatory side and the onboarding side very involved in the in the processes. So. I've done that. So take, I'm basically taking my experience with that background and my connections with various financial institutions. Uh, you know, I tend to work with Pacific Valley bank to be honest with you most of the time and, and pass clients over to them and, and referrals and, and help them bring on, you know, customers. So, um, yeah, but I work with other, uh, other folks, uh, on the East coast who have, do some financing into the industry, which I'm very interested in that as well. So um, yeah, just, you know, kind of once again, kind of speaking their language, knowing their language, and then being able to, to talk on behalf of my clients or anybody I'm trying to bring on at the bank uh, and talk to see how, you know, basically explain like we're good operators. We do this, we do that. We do all the things that the bank wants to see to onboard a client. Oh, interesting. So do you basically help the financial institution or lender assess risk? Like you'll sub, they'll say, hey, Tim, this, you know, cannabis company XYZ wants to, us to bank them. They provided XYZ program. Can you take a look at it kind of deal or? Yeah, no, I've never had that. Um, you know, to be honest with you, it's more like they trust me and I trust them. So, um, you know, we never really hashed that out completely. But, you know, if like, if I feel very comfortable, you know, like, you know, using Pacific Valley Bank, if I feel very comfortable sending a client of mine or, or someone who contacted me looking for banking, 
I can send that to them. I know they're going to be taken care of. I know, you know, they're going to be treated like they're going to get great customer service, et cetera, but whatever. But, um, you know, so just, just working on that side and they trust me to know, like, especially if I'm working, if it's one of my clients, I'm going to have, hopefully have them very put together as far as like, in my opinion, on the compliance side, I would hope so. And the licensing side, that's what I do. That's what they pay me for, you know, to some extent. So, um, to a big extent. Um, so I know I feel comfortable there, but I, I vet people, you know, I like if someone contacts me and gives me a, a contact that's looking for banking, I don't just pass them over. You know, I look at them. I, you know, if I know someone who may know them, I'll talk to them. Um, so yeah, just kind of working with people I trust who give me referrals and going off the trust system. And so far so good, you know, I haven't ran into any bad actors, but, um, yeah, but I could do that work, you know, but I just haven't been approached like that. That that's actually a, a, like a good point that was hidden. What you just said too, is it's, you know, whether consciously or not, an, an attorney or a consultant really has to have like their own, I guess you could call it internal compliance program and a means by which they vet potential, you know, clients that come through. I mean, how do you yeah. go about assessing whether this is someone I want to work with or not? Oh, well, you know, yeah, that's a great question. You know, obviously I check their licenses. Uh, once again, I talk to people who I know who know them and if they've had any issues, kind of vet them that way. Uh, you know, I make sure no one's operating. <laughs> you know, if you're operating illegally, like I'm not doing that. I'm not going to, you know, do that. Sorry. Um, so I'm just very picky. Um, yeah. And I just, you know, I mean, I guess it's kind of, you know, once again, a lot off that trust system, you know, making sure basic stuff's covered, like their license and they have a, a strong desire to, you know, correct any like deficiencies they may have or any issues they're having. If they have that and I get a good sense of that, then then I feel comfortable taking them on as a client. This is a leading question, but do you think you would be as adept as you are with licensing and compliance and everything along those lines had you not gotten the operational experience that you did previously with Kiva and Origin House? Oh, no, I wouldn't be near as good. Not, I mean, not even close. Like you can't, you can't. I don't think you can be good in compliance, uh, honestly, if you don't know some of those operational, core operational issues. And I find too, you almost get rusty if you stop, like if you're not yeah. involved in dealing through issues. So like I, when I was in-house, it was an everyday occurrence, right? But I've since gone back out of house and in doing more transactional contract uh, work, which has its own compliance considerations, but I'm talking like on the ground, boots on the ground, operational issues. And I, you know, have just recently been more involved in those sorts of issues with clients, just with the work that's come up. And it's like, whoa, like I got to take a look back at the regs. Like you do get a little bit rusty and all that. Yeah. If you're Operation, not like it, knowing those operations will keep you sharp though, you know, that's yeah. Like, and yeah. And making you it like, it, it makes you compare like two moving parts. So you got the operational side and then you got the moving parts of what the regs say, and you got to figure out how to like make that work and put them together somehow. And that doesn't like totally screw over the operations, but doesn't totally violate the, the regs as well, or the statute or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens sometimes, but very yeah. rarely is a question like, what does XYZ reg say? 
the question is usually, we want to do this. Can we do it within yes. the meaning of like XYZ regs? Can we do it and how we do it? And then if you find something, like if you observe an, op uh, an operational process as a compliance person, I've had this happen all the time, as a compliance director, you have to figure out what's being done wrong, what like we're violating. And then you have to come up with an answer and how we can operate in an efficient way, uh, but be compliant. That's your job as a compliance director. So, you know, so you, you got to come to the table with some answers as well. You can't just like, you know, tell people what to do. So what, what's the answer? How do we get around it? <laughs> what's the answer, Tim? How, what's the answer without screwing us up completely? So, yeah, I had posted a while ago, you know, compliance rule numbers such and such don't you know bring up problems unless you have a solution to yes anything. and people ran with that so, so you try to say that a compliance officer should bring something up if they don't have a solution which obviously was not what the point of the, the yeah but you, yeah you lose the room pretty quick if you're just pointing out problems and yep. without solutions was the, the general gist of what I was trying yeah. to get across. Look, it, it's very simple. All these people are very busy. You're a compliance director. You're working with usually the C-suite and you're working with extremely busy people, you know, VPs of operation who don't, you know, have time to, who are juggling probably way too much because it's cannabis. They're probably juggling way too much, way, way more than they ever should. Um, and like, you only have a certain amount of time and you, they want to hear, they want to hear solutions. They don't want to hear problems. Like what's, what's the solution. So. And I think that saved me a lot of stress, even just doing like legal work outside of compliance work is like, you kind of have to remove yourself from the situation and recognize what your role is. Your role is to assess risk relay that risk and potential solutions to the decision maker and remind yourself that you aren't the decision maker. You're just there to essentially lay it out for the decision maker. And that for me, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. And I, I bring it up in the context of this conversation because you understand what it's like to go from in-house to out of house. When you're in-house, you're kind of like more involved in those decisions as far as the business slash legal slash compliance decisions. Whereas out of house, I mean, depending on your relationship with the client, it can be a little bit different. And I, I, I find myself having to remind myself of that, you know, very dynamic. When I'm yeah. You know, fortunately, my clients have been very open about uh, they want me involved in a lot of discussions that I don't know, a lot of compliance directors wouldn't be involved in. And you're talking about, you know, anything from build out or, or any other issues. So they're getting pretty involved. They've been very fortunate to be involved in those upper level conversations um, to hedge off, you know, anything that could potentially harm the project or whatever. So I've been very fortunate there, but that doesn't happen all the time. You know, sometimes you're getting, especially uh, working for yourself, you're getting bits and scraps and then you're trying to make decisions and then something else pops up and then you got to, you know, take another course and it's just, yeah. So that it's nice to be included in some of those decision-making processes. And that, and to me, that shows a lot. My clients show me a lot of trust. So that makes me feel like I'm doing my job where they trust me uh, in these particular meetings. So. Well, I, I suspect that you've picked up business acumen as much as compliance acumen as along the way. And like, I, I don't call myself a business consultant, but you can't 
I mean, I, I don't think you can really be in a, an effective compliance person again without understanding the business. So there's value yeah. to be brought there. But to your point, the client steers the ship to the extent that they decide how involved or how not involved you are in things outside of traditional compliance advice. Yeah. I mean, look at anybody, you know, on the Zoom, like if you're looking to jump into this, that's kind of how you should approach those issues uh, when, when you, you know, you're working with your clients. So. And that's, that's a good great. segue, actually. Do we have any questions? You can either hop on camera or just drop it in the chat and I can ask um, Tim. Tim's kind of been through the ringer here, I think, in terms of compliance work, among other things. So he's a a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this stuff. So just let me know. Feel free yeah. to email. Just going to be bashful. Uh, please ask me any questions, whatever. Uh, love to love the chat. Let's uh, let's segue, and I'll I'll keep an eye out on the chat, or if someone hops on. But I want to talk legislation with you. Um, is there are there bills that have been proposed that have caught your attention? Uh yes. Uh, hold on one second. I pulled up a list because I know we you know. Oh, nice. We would be talking about this one second. Let me get situated here. There we go. No worries. I can actually, um, I think I can let you share your screen if you want. I don't know if you want to do it that way or if you just want to go through it. Hold on one second. Uh, yeah, I'll just go through. Okay. We'll give Tim one second to set that up. Let me see if I can change this. Tim, are you still there? Oh, there we go. I think we lost him there for a second. Hey guys, I apologize. I accidentally no clicked on my screen. Sorry, I was moving things around. <laughs> no, um, no worries. I'll get Yeah, so I can't get my list of bill numbers. I'm really bad with numbers, but I know the issues. Uh, I know some of the bill numbers. Uh, one of the ones right off the top of my head, Senate Bill uh, 51, authored by Senator Bradford, which is, I think he's based out of Gardena kind of that area over there. Um, so that's basically uh, extending the deadlines for provisional licenses for equity operators, uh, equity retailers, I believe. So the very important piece of legislation, um, you know, I've talked to some of my contacts in the equity community. Uh, it's a big issue, especially in LA with all of the uh, new licenses, equity licenses uh, coming online. If anybody has some input on how that's rolling out in LA. I'm not in LA. Uh, I'm here in uh, Sacramento. Part of my kids are in the background too. Okay, so, yeah. All good. Um, so yeah, any uh, any comments on that would be great because uh, I haven't really followed that. But uh, I guess that's a big issue uh, that you know that that this bill is trying to address. I don't see any problems with this getting through the you know the legislature. I imagine it'll probably get signed. I'm sure they're working with the administration on the language. So uh, that's going to be a great bill. Um, just uh, one of the uh, big bills that I'm watching um, and hoping this happens is a direct-to-consumer sell option. And I believe that's AB 1111, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Uh, 1111 would uh, essentially create, allow farmers to have a direct-to-consumer model, uh, be able to do farmers events, et cetera. Um, 
interesting politics on this one. So you have like the distributors who are supporting, you have the small cultivators, I think CC, uh, CCIA is supporting as well. Yeah, we, so we signed on to that. I'm on the board of CCIA as well. So we, we signed on to that. Um, so a lot of support, but the uh, LA retailers are, as far as I know, still opposing the bill. Um, really? I, um, I, I don't know, if, and I know them, like they're saying it would, you know, be a detriment to retail and equity licenses coming online. Um, so I, I would love to hear, I mean, I don't know if I honestly buy that argument. I have to hear a little more information on that. I don't understand that argument at all. Um, so, you know, they're opposing this direct to consumer model, um, which they've opposed the last three years. Uh, hold on one second, guys. No worries. Yeah, no worries. Sorry, guys, my four-year-old, he's uh, he likes to party when I'm on these things. So, he, uh, I think he wants some camera time. That's what this Yeah, is. he probably does, knowing him. Yeah, <laughs> he would have a blast with that. So um, I don't, I, it's interesting to me because just outside looking in, wouldn't you assume that the distros would be against it more so than anybody else? I mean, yeah, I you could see that. But, I mean, historically, there hasn't been a lot of opposition from distros. You know, CDA, I mean, I'm just taking, I haven't seen any opposition from them on these bills ever. In fact, I think I've remembered, I very fairly confident that they've supported these measure for the last three years this bill's gone through the that's cool yeah the state process so um you know i mean you know they they get a pretty you know they probably have three or four hundred distributors in their organization so you know not everybody but a good representational model at least so and as far as the equity bill it's always kind of struck me as odd that the state has taken i mean it seems like largely a pretty hands-off approach to it i mean i think they've allocated funds from like the equity fund and i think it was like 20 million bucks or something along those lines yeah so why like to me like why not come up with like a uniform equity program for localities to implement you know as I, opposed I, to yeah i agree 100 i mean i i feel like yeah they've taken steps and the grants and everything that's been great. But I, as far as I know, we don't have a definition of equity, do we? No. And it's, it's interesting because the newer States like New York and the like have, have taken it, you know, yeah. they've really tried to, I think, remove the, the guesswork. On yeah. And I would say the equity community is upset about that. You know, they want their own license types. They want their, yeah, your own license type with your own license. And then you can develop programs, I'll give you an example how it hurts them not having like a state license type. Let's talk banking. <laughs> you go talk to a bank CEO and say, well, hey, let's try and uh, help out equity operators with lower price fees and or lower fees and things like that. And he goes, okay, what's equity? Well, one city does it this way and another city actually has a permit and a program you go through and right. they just look at you and laugh at you because they're like, well, I mean, anyone could fake this, you know, so. Yeah, and I get that like each municipality is different and has its own quirks, but like, I can't imagine we couldn't have like a template program. We should, yeah. To work off of. Yeah, it, it should be, you know, and because we don't have a template program that creates more regulation on top of it, more questions that have to be answered. 
if you make it simple and easy so it doesn't cost so much money and time to get through these processes, that'll help ec equity operators out as well. So, yep. you know. So. No, 100%. Yeah. So any more interesting bills you had on tap? I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, and sorry, I'm drawing a blank on this bill. Uh, I'll try and find it and maybe I'll email it to the group or whatever or post it online or on LinkedIn. But uh, there's a bill that uh, was supported that I believe was sponsored by the California Distributors Association. I know Navis was working hard on it. Uh, basically, as everybody knows, there's a big AR issue uh, in, in cannabis. So, um, you know, this is came from the distributors. Uh, as we know, the distributors have taken a brunt of the hit with a like a big hit on AR. Um, and then that, um, better lack of a term, shit rolls downhill to all the manufacturers and cultivators and they don't get paid as well. So, the, you know, the cultivators and manufacturers are mad at the distributors and distributors are mad at the retailers. So everybody just kind of hates each other. So uh, a very interesting bill, you know, pops up that basically, and it's like original form would have basically created like the alcohol model with liquor. Basically they create set terms on when you pay your invoice um, and really hard, hard and fast guidelines. Now the bill has been watered down significantly um so it only applies like invoices up to five thousand dollars that won't deal with the problem but it's a very interesting approach because it's like you know i don't know where i'm at on it because i work for on the distribution and manufacturing side so i get that point of view and i get like you are left hung out to dry on invoices and then part of those invoices because you distributed the license you were collecting the tax then so you were left out you got hooked on the tax and you had to remit and pay that for someone who didn't pay their invoice. I get it. Um, but that was a, that was like a really aggressive, bold move. Uh, and so I think the retailers are not in support. I don't think they would be, uh, you know, I'm talking more like UCBA, but um, that one's a tough bill because yeah, you know, folks need to get paid, but I don't know if we need to go that big, um, maybe work try and kind of shore up the processes and regulations around that a little bit and not have a, like a, a bill where you're swinging for the fences. Um, that was a very aggressive bill. I don't trying to, I, I'm hoping for unity in the industry these days. So. <laughs> yeah. And no, I'm with you and coming from a similar, a similar background, I think to the degree that I, I oversaw a distro for about three years. So I get it. Like I get it, but at the same time, this whole thing feels a little big brother to me. And I, it's almost like a fool me once, you know, scenario, because my feeling on it is if you're having these issues, then stop giving that same, you know, entity terms. Like why Shut do we- it down. Shut it down. Cause then I'm you how this is playing out too. The bigger brands can kind of flex their muscles and say, hey, I'll just use Kiva, Kiva as an example. Kiva can be like, okay, if you're not going to pay us, we're just not going to be here anymore. If it's a smaller type of account, retail account, um, they'll be like, that's okay. Then your customers are going to come in here and ask for a pretty popular brand. I don't know, maybe you'll so, you know, sub it out for something else, but good luck with that. You might, might start pissing off your customers and then like they have that kind of you know, they, they can throw around that weight because they got a big brand. But if you're a small brand, you don't have that weight. 
right. can't like dictate the terms of the payments and you're like competitively at a disadvantage almost. But just to play devil's advocates, I mean, that that's like, that's every business. That's business, right? yeah. You know, yeah. like that's I mean, kind of what you signed up for. And, you know, the idea yeah. being that you, you uh, accumulate leverage as you build your brand. Yeah. You know? My clients, I, I mean, you know, most of my clients handle it this way. It's real simple. Um, they distribute to accounts, most of it's COD, uh, especially with new accounts that they bring on. And if the COD goes well and they keep reordering and then maybe they'll talk about 14 day terms or maybe 30 day terms. And, you know, nine times out of 10, they hit it right and they get a good client to, you know, we'll pay on the terms if they extend them and everything's okay. But they've also got a lot of money out there and they got a lot of bill collectors coming after them too. So, you know, it's like, because they're having trouble paying vendors as well. So, you know, it's like, it's bad out there, you know. And herein lies the irony in all of this. What what about the state is going to coming in is going to fix this problem? Because if you're going to say to me, "Oh, the state's going to come in and suspend this person's license," that's not getting you paid any quicker, you know? Like, yeah, I, that's not not in this industry. No, no, I, I just I don't see I see the problem, and there certainly is a problem to all of this. But I, I think a lot of it would be better resolved by you know. The people with the AR issues being more vigilant about looking in and establishing establishing a relationship in the same way that you just said. So as opposed to giving someone thirty day terms sight unseen, you develop that relationship and trust, and then you get there. I, I just flash. This is business, guys. This is business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, it really is. Um, it's unfortunate that people aren't getting paid. Like I get the, I get it. Um, but you know, you you. Just don't trust people. But I recommend if anyone's like doing distribution or don't don't extend terms to a lot of people, uh, make sure you advocate for yourself and stick up and you know against push back against some of these demands. And like if yeah. people start doing that, then that changes the relationship pretty quickly. So yeah, and I, I don't mean to sound cold. Like I, if anybody understands this issue, believe me, it's me. Like I I I get it. But I think the positive thing to take away from this is that the solution, I think, is in the operator's hands already. Yeah. It's not something that they need to wait for, for a bill for the DCC or any other state entity to come in and swoop and save the day. I think it's just due diligence in the in the beginning process as far as taking on a new vendor. And like you said, establish that level of trust. I just, I don't see how any of that is going to change by the state getting involved personally. No, it's probably not a lot. And, you know, they have other issues that they need to uh, attend to that uh, are very big, you know, but um, hey, look, at even if, like hypothetically, if there was a bill and this got passed, I mean, it would take, it would honestly probably take two years to implement. And by the time they got around to implementing it, this problem, we would just shake it out ourselves and fix it ourselves. Well, not, the way I look at it is this. If you really want to solve the AR problem, solve the tax issue that cannabis businesses face and lack of access to retail, because inevitably what would happen is you would have more money for these businesses to be able to pay their bills. Like that's yes, going to have a exactly. more direct impact than the state coming in and levying more fines, penalties on a license, which are going to take those companies that owe money farther away from being able to pay their bills. Like, let's talk about the market conditions that are getting companies 
to that state of not being able to pay their bills more so than some other. You know, you know it's very interesting. Like I follow politics and I follow like what companies are lobbying, <clears throat> excuse me, lobbying the government to do what and change rules and regulations. But like, I laugh sometimes because I'm like, you guys are not cannabis. Can you imagine like the, I, it's just like, we're set up to fail. And I don't want to sound like a defeatist, but like, and, but we're scrappy and they figure it out and they find investment money. So that's the one, that's what I really love about the cannabis industry. It's so scrappy, but yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just tough out there financially. How are you going to survive with the amount of taxation that we have? And we're, you know, we complain about state taxation, but a lot of people, you know, 280E gets brought up, but it should be brought up more because it's like, I mean, I honestly feel like if 280E wasn't there, we would have a better shot at this, even with all of the high California taxation and high taxation in other states and high regu high regulatory bars, et cetera. So yeah, at some point there has to be a reckoning among the stakeholders, the government, the labor, the industry, everybody kind of needs to agree that there needs to be like a baseline where these business, these businesses are here. They're not going anywhere. Even if you deal with, even if you don't deal with this problem, might as well fix the problems, allow them to thrive, bring in the tax revenue, accomplish the um, social goals you would like with cannabis. Hopefully you have some of those as a policymaker and, you know, we win the day, but uh, right now it's not just, I don't, I don't even know when a lot of this is in the cards. So. Yeah. I mean, they, they, not to be, I mean, I haven't read the bill. I've, I've generally aware of the AR bill and what it was trying to accomplish. And I'm not trying to, I think it's very well intentioned. I think it's an issue that needs to be resolved, but to your point, we have these like systemic issues that need to be resolved and, you know, putting something forward like that is really only putting a bandaid on the problem. If is it arguably making it worse? I would think yeah. to some degree not to take too hard a line on it. Cause again, like, I've experienced firsthand how crippling a, that, that situation can be on behalf of clients. Like, I get it. And I'm, I'm not trying to take anything away from that, but I think we have to reframe the way we're thinking about the situation and what the real solution is. Yeah, 100%. We got we to gotta start having more real conversations. Um, you know, unfortunately, like, look at, I respect the folks who work in Sacramento. I respect all that. But I've worked in politics and I understand, no, but I totally respect these people and I consider them friends and, you know, work with them. It's just the the meat grinder process in Sacramento politics is just, it just is what it is, you know, and it's always been there. And unfortunately, cannabis, I think, is learning that all too well. And like, yeah, there's bills that get through and they, they're well-meaning and everything, but by the time we get them and they're, if they're signed, remember they got to go through the, all these crazy process. They got to go through an average cannabis bill will go through four committee hearings. Uh, it will go through anywhere from like two, uh, it will either three to four uh, floor hearings. And then has to, then goes to the governor. If it gets through all that two thirds vote bills for most of this stuff. Um, so the, you know, like, look at there's democratic super majorities, but not every Democrat's a favor of cannabis either. So <laughs> we got to consider that too. So we have to build bridges and we work with the other side of the aisle on, on various issues, which they are more equipped, you know, that they, they work with. So there's that, uh, but yeah, it's just a, it's a long process, you know, and 
um, I think, you know, a lot of the core issues have kind of gotten grinded up in that process and maybe watered down a little bit too much for my opinion, you know, we got to get at the core of issues. We got to talk about like, I think it's very obvious that the taxes need to be reduced in California for a whole host of reasons. And we just got to have a better program. Like we got to figure out the secret sauce. I wonder if the secret sauce is like between the DCC and the local governments, like figuring that out and figuring out how to get their programs up and get all of that going. Because I feel like that's one of the major like log jams right now. Um, so if we could improve that process, get more retail, as you say, get the taxes down, get, you know, start eliminating some of these barriers and cannabis industry is going to be just fine. I think it, and it'll be a, my, in my opinion, and I could be wrong. I think it'll be a my, more diverse market too. That's what we're trying to achieve as well. Right. We're most of us in this industry are supportive of equity. I, I think we should be. Um, so yeah, you kind of, to me, that's how you got to do this, but, um, we get, you know, it goes through the meat grinder and we get certain, you know, bills and then we come back and work on them again and hopefully improve them. But this is a slow grinding process. And, um, you know, I'll just be honest with you guys, you know, it's like tough over there. Um, you know, and a lot of these trade groups who are working over there who kind of do a lot of the front facing work, you know, they're struggling because their members are struggling. And so they've lost membership and don't have um, the, the funds to lobby the state government. Remember the, they hire lobbyists, they have, they got to send their staff down to, you know, testify before bills and stuff like that. So all of these, um, you know, associations who are working on this stuff are, are strapped for cash right now and trying to stave off, you know, crazy issues. And another bill that fortunately it made it out of committee and got watered down significantly. Thank God. Um, it was a AB 1207. It was a bill that would put just these crazy uh, labeling and packaging requirements on uh, cannabis products. And it was ran by a, um, the bill's sponsor was called Getting It Right from the Start. It's this doctor named Lynn Silver, who um, like has a group of like doctors who are getting involved in legislation at the state capitol to add packaging and labeling, you know, extra requirements. I mean, they want, my feeling about it is like they are mad because they lost the legalization fight and now they're going to use their their power and state government which let's face it they do they're well funded they got lobbyists you know they can get into doors any politician doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on you can't turn those people away they show up at your office you have to meet with them and you have to take what they say into some consideration so for the last three years, we've had this bill run through basically trying to create all these labeling packaging restrictions and our crazy guidelines. I can send you info later. I could go on about it forever. But um, yeah, so luckily we were as an industry and it was a collaborative effort on multiple trade groups um, and, uh, you know, industry leaders, industry leaders, you know, companies, um, they were able to water it down significantly, but it's still alive and it still needs to die. It's going to appropriations committee soon. So, you know, working, I've, I've been doing some work too. I don't get paid for this stuff, but doing some work to kind of, well, you know, my clients pay me to be involved in this, but doing some work with some companies and trade associations to kill this legislation. So that's what trade groups should do. We should be killing all this stuff and we should be getting through, uh, um, 
getting through some of these existential issues. And I, I feel like we need to be more aggressive instead of less aggressive. So on that front, but respectfully, yeah. I feel like any organization or individual who is proposing more packaging and labeling requirements should have to have a mock-up of a label and show us where you're planning on putting these additional yeah. requirements, oh, you know? I wish I had the sheet available. So they had a fact sheet and part of their fact sheet, the fact sheet is essentially um, every legislator who runs a bill asks like the sponsor of the bill a group or a company or whatever it is to produce what's called a fact sheet. Like with the, what are the basic tenets of this bill? What is, what's the problem? What's, how is this bill a solution, et cetera, like that. So the fact sheet is full of cannabis packaging. Like it has a uh, sumo snacks. It has Kivas on there, wilds on there. Uh, and uh, like some local companies here in Sacramento. And then like they went in a cookie store and they found the trappiest looking packaging, you know, that uh, looked like, I mean, look kind of like geared towards children or they were arguing. And they're like, here's all these examples. This industry's crazy. And, you know, they need to be regulated. We need to tamp this down. And it needs to be like Canada, you know, where it's put in like a, you know, a white, you know, Ziploc bag or whatever they use, the very high standards over there. And so we were able to beat it back, you know, hopefully it dies in appropriations, but that bill is going to come back every year. They're going to try and run it. So, you know, that's what we, we have to deal with on a daily basis in Sacramento. So. Well, I, th I think a big picture takeaway from here, from this entire conversation towards the latter end of it, it it's criticizing myself is to not play Monday morning quarterback in the way that I did with the AR issue. I just, I have opinions on it just by virtue of living in the distro world, having a lot of sympathy for it, but not necessarily agreeing with that being the proper solution. But it, my, my point in all of it is it, it's not enough to necessarily just read through a bill. You also have to look into to what's going on in the background and all this to really yeah. understand how it came to be and where it's going. Yeah, no, if anybody has questions, feel free to send me a DM on my LinkedIn and um, I'm sure everybody has that. So uh, through the link, um, yeah, shoot me questions. Or I'm sure Ryan knows he's a wealth of information as well. So uh, any questions, yeah, cause I am involved in, you know, a lot of these policy talks still, um, like most of it is not for clients. That's not what they really hired me for, but uh, they like hearing the, you know, the as I say, the cheese made that's going on in the Capitol with all the legislation. So, yeah. Is LinkedIn the best way to get a hold of you or is there any other contact information? Yeah, should I turn in the chat. Um, real simple. My email is Moreland, M-O-R-L-A-N-D, consulting at gmail.com. So if you have any questions, feel free to send, uh, shoot me an email and uh, we'll talk. Perfect. That seems like a good spot to stop. I really appreciate you taking the time, especially on a Friday afternoon, Tim. It was good. Yeah, my you. pleasure. Let's do this again soon. 100%. Appreciate All it. Right. Everybody has a Thanks, good weekend. Guys. Take care. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye.